0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, Guiding Teacher at Common Ground.
1: I noticed that somebody left the uh, memorial book that we have open in the community room. Maybe you noticed it. And there's a picture of Renee Howard in a little description of her life. Um, she died, I think, maybe eight years ago on this day. Rini was our chair of the board of directors at Common Ground. And uh, she was staying with women me at our house for the last few months of her life. She was dying of cancer. And uh, many community members during that three-month period came by to help take care of her. And especially during the year-end retreat, it was sort of a steady walk of people over to sit with her in her last hours and days. And uh, sometime, hopefully this winter, we'll have a conversation for people who are interested in the possibility of Common Ground having a place for people to die, a home where people can spend their last days with the support of the community. And uh, sort of begs the question you know, what, what is it about Buddhists and <laughs> why are they, you know, why are we interested in death? Why aren't we like the rest of the culture, you know, that want to hide it in some way? It always sort of struck me as interesting, because I've known several people and uh, who have lost a dear one and, and have wanted to go, you know, the cremation um, companies, they're not really set up for people to be there when the body's being burned. But some people who want to be close, several people in our community, they really have Advocated for the ritual of washing the body after it's dead and going to the actual place where they're burning the body. Because otherwise, it's sort of nicely organized. You know, they, I don't know if you've been around death much, but they sweep in the funeral home very quickly, take the body away before it starts to get stiff or begins to smell much. And then, you know, either they dress it up or they it goes right to the crematorium and you're get given, you know, a box. It looks kind of nice with the ashes. When uh, my good friend, our good friend, all of our good friends, Shelley also knew Denny Johnson very well. When he died... Um, at our retreat property come gone retreat property we went out there and by the time we got out there it's an hour and a half away they had already taken the body away he had a tractor accident and uh and then uh, we had to take care of a lot of business contacting his family and, and such and then later that afternoon or evening I think it was by that time um we wanted to go see the body, and he was at a funeral home about an hour away, and we really, I mean, his body was damaged in the tractor accident, and uh, it was just interesting how the funeral home director, a really nice person, didn't really try to discourage us from sitting with the body, seeing the body, and it wasn't dressed up, it was just, then he was the body was just in a body bag, so we had to unzip it so we could be there. There's a very interesting sutta where the Buddha is talking to sorry Putta, one of the better known characters at the time of the Buddha, and uh, known for his generosity so the Buddha was talking about gifts and about good merit or sort of good results coming back to people. And he gives an example of a time, and it's just like way over the top. This is the Buddha recounting a previous lifetime. So it's one of those stories. And he just goes on and on about how, you know, 84,000 gold trays... Eighty-four thousand silver trays and just blankets and domesticated animals and jewels and and you know and talked about the value of that gift. But the thing is, that gift that he had done in a previous lifetime, this way over-the-top gift, was just given to an, an ordinary person. And so the Buddhist point is, if you had given even one meal to a sincere practitioner how much better in terms of the effect on one's heart than giving a big gift to just sort of -of run-of-the-mill folks. And then he goes on and on, gets to the place of, but yeah, all those really developed practitioners but to give it to a Buddha, even better, or to give it to a Buddha and those practicing with the Buddha. Or even better than that, to build a practice cabin for the nuns and monks and the buddha that's even better right and it just goes on like in terms of the valuable gifts or blessings in our life so even more profound of a blessing is uh, if one were to go with a confident mind for refuge in these in this practice and these teachings like we did on the first night that's better than all of those gifts, including giving food to a Buddha. And then even better than that, if one were with a confident mind were, were to undertake the precepts, basically living a life dedicated to not harming. And even greater than that is <laughs> sort of an interesting... if one were to develop even just one whiff of a heart of goodwill, right, that would be more fruitful than all of those other activities. So like the metta practice you did this afternoon with Shelley, if your heart got established, unified to some degree in the quality of compassion and that bonfire of compassion, Unified so that all the activities of the mind were all on the same page, all uh, in sync with each other, in the holding of that emotional quality of love, and then you'll see where this is going. Because the next thing, the the thing that's most valuable, if one were to develop, even just, even for just A finger snap, the perception of inconstancy and permanence, or the undependable nature and substantial nature, just for an instant, that would be more fruitful than all these other gifts in terms of the effect, you know, the positive effect on the mind stream. So the Buddha really emphasize this interest, this contemplation of impermanence. I mean, of course, we haven't met the Buddha, but I can imagine, I'm I'm really comfortable imagining that he was a pretty impressive human being. And it's interesting that his last words, you know, could have said anything, but his last words were about impermanence. He said, basically everything's coming and going. Things arise and then they cease. Contemplate this. Do your practice of seeing the underlying, inconstant, not dependable, uncertain nature. See this, contemplate this wholeheartedly with vigilance. Those were his last words. In a way, because the habits of denial and distraction are so strong, a lot of our is just stabilizing the awareness until this underlying nature just comes into view, becomes apparent. I left out an article. Um, I recommend that you try to either read it during the retreat or after the retreat. It's called Wild Darkness from Orion Magazine. And the author's name is Eva Salatis, I think is how she pronounces her last name. It's really a powerful article and I think it relates to that comment I made at the first night about you know, the Buddhist teachings being neither optimistic nor pessimistic, but rather realistic. And here's this woman, um, she and her husband um, work doing research, research on the orcas, sometimes called killer whales, out in Prince William Sound. Um, Some of you know it's in Alaska. It's an amazing place. I've been there. You might know of it because there was that big oil spill. One of the bigger towns is Valdez, where that big oil spill was maybe 20 years ago. And... uh, and what would they what they did? They spent a lot of time on the boat, of course, then studying the whales, but then they'd go in not anything close, so they'd just go inland to one of the streams and they would see these salmon runs and uh it's if you don't know anything about the life cycle of salmon, it's a very interesting life cycle, so they're born in these little lakes. Rivers and then they flow into the ocean. They spend most of their life in the ocean, get quite big. I Spend a little time. When I was up there on a salmon fishing boat, my best friend's cousin was a captain of a, a boat, so we got to be on the boat for I don't know a week or two, and do some fishing. And yeah, anyway, it's just very. These are impressive creatures. But we saw them right before they did the run up the rivers. And then as they're going up, they become much more primitive-looking. They don't eat once they leave the ocean. And their whole purpose is to get back to the lake or the place they were born and either lay eggs or fertilize eggs. And they're basically in their last moments. And then they die. And there are hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of these big. I mean, some of those salmon are huge and uh, just rotting. And of course, the bald eagles and the bears and the birds, other birds, you know, everybody in those very wild places feed on these salmons. And so this is, you know, she and her husband, this is what they do for fun when, you know, when it's salmon season, they, they hang out with all this gore and stink and rot. And she, in this essay called Wild Darkness, she talks about this with her new eyes now that her cancer has returned, inoperable, incurable cancer. And uh, just, you know, part of the new eyes is seeing this this, uh, nature of birth and death as what life is it's not like there's life and there's death but what life is is birth and death right it's not death is an anti life she makes this point in the article so i recommend it she's not a buddhist and which in some ways makes the article really powerful about somebody and of course she had a lot of incentive and a lot of support, it seems, to cultivate a really honest and deep reflection on impermanence, on the nature of everything to arise and cease. As that funeral chant that I mentioned, I think last night, all things arise and cease, understanding this deeply, leads to the greatest happiness, which is peace. When the mind attunes, learns how to attune to the insubstantial, undependable, uncertain nature. Of course, it's always been this way. We've just been busy Constructing ideas that create an appearance of solidity and permanence and ground. When we attune to the underlying nature, which has always been the way it is, will always be this way, the Buddha says, experience tells us that there's happiness, the happiness of not needing the uncertain, insubstantial, impermanent nature to be other than the way it is. Like the Buddha says, the need for a resting place is burning. Or we could sort of expand that. The need for the world to be different than it is, is burning. We're in an uncertain, changing, insubstantial, not dependable world. But we're pretty sure we need solid ground. So we go about trying to find ground. And we suffer. And then here's the real kicker. Because we're suffering, we assume we're suffering because of the threat of impermanence. But remember the quote, And you had that, everyone got a copy of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's few words on impermanence. The problem with impermanence isn't the impermanence. It's the thinking that there's ground or there should be ground or there should be permanence or that there is permanence and I just haven't found it. I haven't found the solid ground, but I'm getting there. I'm getting my act together. This is the you know, the great gift of loss and death and anything that just brings this underlying truth to mind. It's not just that fall ends and winter begins. The truth of impermanence, the truth of uncertainty and inconstancy it goes you know as subtle as subtle gets. It's not just, I'm born and I get to live for a while and then I die. That's just a bigger picture of what's true in each moment. Each moment has its birth and its death. But it's like that, you know, the image of the film. We get captivated by the story of the film and we don't realize it's just, I mean, in the olden days when we actually had film, you know, it's just one frame after another, and that frame is there for a moment and it ceases. So when we feel the profound poignancy, the this sort of amazing ache or feelings in our heart, I don't know, what was I... I was bringing something to mind today when I was reading the article and mm, can't remember what the image or the experience was, but basically being around death, people with old bodies, you know, in the hospital where there's that particular smell, or nursing home where there's those smells. That you know, basically, the body decomposing, falling apart, or a really uh, important loss. There's a very particular feeling in the body and in the heart and mind. It's kind of uh, you know, it has different there's different angles and times and moments. It has a feeling of disgust. Or something is dead inside of us, betrayal. And I think it really points to the uh, you know, just that shock. I don't know if anybody read the short article that I put up by Gil Fransdahl, but he quotes a very well known passage from the Mahabharata, this great epic in um Indian culture, ancient, ancient epic. Some of you know or have heard of the Bhagavad Gita, which is a text embedded in the Mahabharata. And uh, it's a really interesting story. And uh, one particular element of it is there's some in some sort of court, the privileged people are arguing about what's the most amazing thing And uh, this wise person says, well, you know what the most important thing is? Everybody is around death all the time, and yet somehow they don't think it applies to them. You know, they live their life as if it doesn't apply to them. And this is what's interesting about this article, um, where, you know, just being a seeming, seems like a really honest, direct, grounded person. She didn't spend or waste her time practicing denial or destruction. There's just a few little reflections here. She was talking about how what's really scared her was the sterility of the hospitals and dying, hooked up to machines, dying trying to live and uh, ultimately what I faced what I faced those hospital nights what I faced every day is death impending the other side the passing over into the big unknown what writer Harold Brodke called his wild darkness what poet Christian Wyman calls his bright abyss Death may be the wildest of all, the least tame or known phenomenon our consciousness has to reckon with. I don't understand how to meet it, not yet, maybe never. Perhaps, I tell myself, though we deny and abhor the battle, death, we deny and abhor and battle death in our society, though we hide it away, it is something so natural, so innate. That when time comes our bodies, our whole selves know exactly how it's done. All I know right now is that something has stepped toward me, something invisible, some invisible presence in the woods, one I've always sensed and feared and backed away from, called out called out to in a tentative voice Hello? trying to scare it off, but which I now must approach. I stumble toward it in dusky conifer light, my own predatory furred-toothed-clawed angel. She quotes, um, i not sure if it's Pico Iyer, He's a well-known author and he's written about the Dalai Lama. And now in this passage he quotes of his. um, He's writing about Varanasi, a place that Hindus consider holy and often um, plan to be cremated there on the banks of the Ganges River. Spirituality in Varanasi lies precisely in the poverty and sickness and death that it weaves into its Unending tapestry, a place of holiness. It says is not apart from the world. In a Shangri-La of calm, but a place where purity and filth, anarchy and ritual, unquestionable vitality, and the constant imminence of death all flow together. If there is spirituality in nature, it is in the sublime purity of wild roses and wild mushrooms and mossy woods and the vitality of deer nibbling kelp on the beach and the violet light of an oncoming storm and equally in the anarchy and filth of the spawning grounds and the undoctored real and ever dying world. So even though In our practice, we're really um, moving into a more intimate and subtle looking at impermanence, how thoughts come and go, pain, even what feels like substantial and constant pain. When we look at it in a relaxed, stable way, we see that it can actually be pinpointed. You know, it's something that's alive, morphing, changing, intensifying, releasing. But we can begin with these big things like the loss of our parents or the loss of a friend, the loss of a a relationship or seeing a bird crash into the window and die. These kind of more common place and really on purpose let them in. Even contemplating the ending of the day, how Thursday was born, some you know, 15 hours ago, whatever it was in the morning when we got up. And, you know, it's it's on its way out. Wednesday's completely gone. November is like ancient history. Nowhere to be found, you know, the past. So the, the mystery of loss, the mystery of anicca, the sort of, that what this is is not dependable is uncertain it's really apparent if we're interested in contemplating the way it is things as they are it just doesn't seem that relevant to us and then as we become you know more sincere students of the buddha you know because he was all about this contemplation because it's liberating it's not like medicine we have to take in order to be good, it's liberating. It liberates the mind from the endless cycles of pretending things are other than they, than they actually are. Being dependent on things that aren't dependable. Thinking things are going to make us happy that don't make us happy. And it puts so much pressure on those we really love because we expect them to make us happy. You know, it, we more than probably anything, we've ruined relationships with our parents and our loved ones and our children and our pets because we use those relationships to feel safe in an uncertain, not dependable, impermanent world. They, these relationships, are really here to support us and doing the work we can do, not to create some life raft so that we feel existentially safe, you know, kind of remove the reality of uncertainty from our life because this person loves me or because they care about me and will make me breakfast or you know, whatever the elements of the relationship is that we pretend are going to be that ground for us. So even a place like common ground or the Buddhist teachings or a relationship <coughs> we might have with a teacher or a mentor. is a very poignant passage. I remember, I guess I was, I was on a solo retreat when I first read this um passage, I, I forget what book I was reading, but the book I think it might might have been now uh, The Life of the Buddha. There's this nice collection, it's a little dated now, the translations, but Bhikkhu Nyanamoli, this western, I think maybe German monk, he's long he's been dead now for a couple of decades. But he was a very wonderful translator in the mid-1900s. And uh, he did a really nice thing. He took all the different discourses and took the most important ones and then just did his best to organize them in a book according to some possible chronology of the Buddha's life. So the talks the Buddha gave earlier on at the front of the book the talks and activities, the discourses that refer to a period of time near his death at the end of the book, so on and so on like that. So I was reading this and I was on retreat by myself somewhere, I forget where. But I just found it so moving, these passages of these, uh, because the Buddha just talks in such a realistic way of what it's like to be getting old. There's one scene, you know, where he tells Ananda, you know, I'm like an old cart held together by bamboo strips, or you know, where he'll lie down and ask Sariputta to finish the Dharma talk because his back hurts, Um, or he's with a a good friend who's also a king, and uh, the king is saying, you know, just talking about how how hard it is to be old and to be a king. With all the responsibilities. And he likens it to sort of sitting someplace in four great mountain ranges, one to the north, one to the south, one to the east and west, are marching in toward you. <laughs> and the king says, And the only thing I can think to do is to practice mindful awareness, you know, to do the practice. And the Buddha, Yeah, that's right. This is how it is for us human beings as if four great mountain ranges are wa- marching in toward us. So this is uh, near the, uh, uh, the end of the Buddha's life, but his uh, senior, his two great disciples, Moggallana and Sariputta, uh, died before the Buddha. They were older than the Buddha. And he got word they brought the Buddha his bowl, their bowls and uh, robes And Ananda, his attendant, who was much younger than the Buddha, um, was really distraught because Sariputta had been such an important teacher to him. And uh, uh, Ananda says to the Buddha, when I heard about them dying, I felt as though my body were quite rigid. I could not see straight and all my ideas were unclear. That's that feeling I was trying to describe earlier, you know, when we feel shocked by loss. It uh, It's really disorienting until the heart, mind, body integrates, has time, healing, whatever it needs to integrate the loss. And so the Buddha says, why Ananda? Do you think, you know, by their death that somehow in their dying that they removed virtue like he's he's going to name some of the things that we can cultivate in life that support us like being a good human being being committed to non-harming did they take that away your capacity to develop virtue your capacity to be generous your capacity to develop samadhi, a quiet, clear, calm mind, to develop insight? I mean, obviously the answer is no. They died, but they didn't take away our refuge, right? Because the Buddha's just outline what the refuge is. The refuge isn't friendship. You know, when we chanted the refuges on whatever night that was, ancient history, two and a half nights ago, whatever it was, right? We didn't take refuge in all of our good friends, Sometimes we think sangha means good friends, but it isn't the personal. That, that's not the sangha. What we take refuge in for sangha, that particular aspect of refuge, is the moments of enlightened, kind, wise activity that arise in human beings, including ourselves. We take refuge that human beings are capable of enlightened action, enlightened engagement kindness, fearless responsivity, showing up, doing what needs to be done. We don't take refuge in the individuals, but in this human capacity to be sangha, to be in that moment or for moments not operating out of greed, anger, and delusion so that our showing up is actually useful, helpful. That's what we take refuge in. And then Ananda goes on um, and it just explains how helpful he was to everybody You know that will miss him, basically. And then the Buddha says to Ananda this really beautiful thing. Ananda, have I not already told you that there is separation and parting and division from all that is dear and beloved? How could it be that what is born come to being, formed and subject to fall, should not fall? That is not possible. Right? If there's birth, there's loss, death. It is if it is it is as if a main branch of a great tree standing firm and solid had fallen. So too Sariputta has attained final Nibbana. He's died. In the great community that stands firm and solid, how could it be that what is born, come into being, formed, and bound to fall should not fall? That is not possible. Therefore, Ananda, each of you should make oneself one's island, oneself and no other one's refuge. Each of you should make the Dhamma, one's island, the Dhamma and no other one's refuge. Right. So we have this life and these teachings, these practices the way it is. So it's understanding. It's a little bit uh, shocking and absurd you know how You know, for me, for my particular personality type, you know, I create ground by um, constructing uh, really somewhat dependable maps of the way I think things are. So, more intellectual types, cognitive types. You know, it's not, other people might have gold bars or, you know, other rela- like relationships. but it's like what I the solid ground my mind tends to be dependent on is like knowing what's happening. And if that would, because the idea my mind has about what's happening is never really what's happening. It's always a bad approximation. It always requires patching up and lying, self-deception. Well, I knew that. I knew that. I was planning on that. Or something that, because for that kind of mind, that ground is uh, it's really synonymous with being physically safe. So a lot of what we're cultivating you know, by leaving behind your homes for much of the day or leaving behind conversation or whatever we do when we do our practice, even for an hour every day after the retreat ends. Part of the form of retreating and sitting and just even daily life practice where we are out in the world, we're practicing being without any dependence. Non attachment, right? Letting all attachments cease. Not pretending we're not attached, but letting them cease. Knowing that attachments, you know, it's like uh, that whatever the mind is attached to isn't dependable anyway. So I'm going to leave it here. We'll pick it up next uh, tomorrow night, but Wyn's going to share a little bit, but I'll just end with this poem. Some of you have heard this before. I've read it at other Dharma Talks. The Takini Speaks. And this is from Joyce Wellwood. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, Everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like human right beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed, as though life has broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence impermanence is life's only promise to us and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. (laughs)
0: <laughs> when Rini died um, before she died, she said it was okay with her to or that she wanted her body to be around for three days, which is part of the Buddhist tradition to kind of allow allow that change to happen, the energy to shift uh, uh without trauma and um and so. Community members continued to go over and sit with her body, um, and it was just quite beautiful, you know, uh, people with her all night long and and, uh, and watching, watching the body diminish, you know, like the, the, the bones becoming more prominent and keeping the body on ice um, to you know, keep the smells from filling the room. And, um, and it was, you know, such a gift uh, that she kind of gave, gave to the community to be present with that. And uh, it was similar to when Mark's when Mark's father died. You know, before he died, he said to uh, Mark's sister, my sister-in-law, it's okay to keep me around for a little bit. It's okay to keep me around. And, and we did the same uh, with his body. And, and I, I have felt a real draw toward, uh, you know, staying close to death because of what i learn you know because it's so powerful and um and i find the same same power in looking in meditation at beginnings and endings and this same um yeah um i'm not sure what to say about it except that in, in particularly in the meditations of watching cessation, <laughs> watching birth and death happen again, moment to moment, it disrupts these maps that Mark was referring to completely. These ideas that I have of what what death is, of what I am, and uh, and I find that the deeper I move into the meditation and the closer I stay to to death and dying and sickness, the more freedom, the more space is born around it. So that's really interesting to me. Um, there's a kind of safety that emerges. And I wanted to share um, just just a little, for me, it's just some words from Ajahn Semedo and Thich Han, Hanh. Ajahn Semedo. He says, Through being awake, alert, and no longer attached, we realize cessation and we abide in emptiness where we all merge. There's no person there. People may arise and cease in the emptiness, but there's no person. There's just clarity, awareness, peacefulness, and purity. And then Tiknat Han. <coughs> Our greatest pain is caused by our notions of coming and going. Since before time, you have been free. Birth and death are only doors through which we pass, sacred thresholds on our journey. Birth and death are a game of hide and seek. You have never been born. You can never die. So I think it's, it's important to take statements like that, you know, not as doctrine, but as invitations to investigate and to keep investigating. Yeah, we have just a, a few minutes left, but I thought, you know, I was really moved by... Um, uh, the compassion meditation today and with this image of the the sweet bonfire in the heart, you know, this, this compassionate burning warmth that, that we can feel. And I thought maybe if each of us could just uh, bring to mind, um, you know, maybe whatever nudgy fear or whatever nudgy clinging, whatever that might be in your heart right now, whatever comes to you that just feels like it would benefit from the touch of that compassion, that we could just sit with that for a moment. So let's take the last few minutes in silence and call to mind something specific, something specific that, that could use that, that warm bonfire compassion. And not forcing anything, just opening, just relaxing. I'll end with a poem called Such Tenderness by Raquel Chalfi. Such tenderness in our body as it abandons us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt, gradually, wistfully, like a half-sleeping beauty It weaves for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom. No earthquake cracks, but an airy network of anxiety lines. How kind of our body that it doesn't change our face all at once, that it doesn't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously like a pale moon bathing us with its glow, It illuminates us with a network of sad nerves, folds our skin in the corners, hardens our spinal cord so we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our body that gradually betrays us, politely prepares us, tells us in whispers bit by bit, hour by hour, that it is leaving